program, as you'll hear, but we also have a medical program. Um, and annually, we see over 500 kids with um, healthy with weight management issues. Um, our second person is somebody that's new to our division, um, Dr. Healy. I hope all of you have had a chance to meet him. Uh, he did his pediatric surgery fellowship uh, with us here, and we were very lucky to be able to recruit him to join our division uh, after he was uh, done. He also did a surgical training down at Yale, so we did poach him from the dark side. <laughs> and finally, uh, Dr. Fulwani. Um, who is the endocrinologist in our program and um, does a fantastic job in taking care of uh, some of the other needs um, of the children of our program and actually forms an amazing bond with the children and follows them, everything okay? And follows them throughout the program. Um, so I'd like to just give you some objectives of the talk for today. We wanna to describe the new guidelines for adolescents in bariatric surgery discuss the outcomes of adolescent bariatric surgery, so dispelling some of the myths, and review the role of medications in the treatment of pediatric obesity. First, I would like to start with a poll everywhere question. Um, so this is for everybody. Do you have youth in your practice that are considered obese? Yes or no? This is an easy one. Is that working? Start the, it says start the. What's that? It's not working at all. I think he was trying to work on it. All right, can we have a show of hands then? How many people uh, in the practice that are? So I figured uh, pretty much the majority. In Connecticut, how many children between the ages of five and 17 are overweight or obese? Show of hands for 19, 19%, 25%, 29 or 39%. So these are some fun facts, but they're actually pretty sobering when you read them. This is from 2018, the estimates of obesity and its risk factors among Connecticut. So this is specific to our state, Connecticut youth. Almost one third of Connecticut's youth are overweight or obese. 29% of Connecticut children 5 to 17 years old are overweight or obese. 28.7% of Connecticut high school students are overweight or obese. 31% of Connecticut's kindergarten and third grade students suffer from the same um, obesity. Children ages 2 to 4 participating in the WIC program, they estimate at least 15.3% are overweight and 14.8% are obese. The prevalence of obesity is higher among male children compared with female children. And non-Hispanic, Black and Hispanic youth are more likely to be obese compared to non-Hispanic white youth. So those are some pretty sobering statistics. And I know over time, we had thought that the rate of obesity was on the decline, but what we've seen is it's plateaued and it really isn't. So we still have a lot of work that we need to do uh, to help our children. Okay, show of hands, what percentage of children in Connecticut play video games three or more hours per day? 5%, 30%, 35%? So the answer is 40%, interestingly. Yes. <laughs> um, One-sixth of Connecticut high school students watch three or more hours of television on average a day. 42.2% of Connecticut high school students played video games or used a computer three or more hours per day on an average school day. And an estimated 42.3% of all Connecticut children less than 18 years have three or more hours of screen time per day. Oh, is it going now? 
All right, we'll try this one. We've got two more questions. As a provider in Connecticut, do you feel prepared to treat obesity? Yes or no? Oh, your computer's doing it, yeah. All right, so 80% of you are saying no. Good news, we'll help with that. And then on a scale of one to 10, 10 being absolutely yes, how comfortable do you feel with a surgical approach to obesity for youth? You're testing my eyesight. <laughs> and actually on the computer here, it's showing that the majority of you are feeling at a one. And so once again, good news, Dr. Healy is gonna uh, dispel some of the myths and help us help um, convey some of the information on surgical treatment for obesity. All right, so to move on, um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Santos to give us um, the adolescent bariatric surgery. There's new guidelines for care. Hi everyone, so I'm excited to be here today to talk to you about the new guidelines that were just released for adolescents undergoing bariatric surgery. If you'd like a copy of the guidelines that were just released as well as some other materials, you can use your smartphone to scan that QR code. Um, and it should take you to some PDFs that might be helpful um, for you. So in August of last year, new guidelines were released for the care of adolescents undergoing bariatric surgery, which drastically changed who qualifies for bariatric surgery and the care that's provided for them. And then for the first time ever, about three weeks ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics finally came out in support of bariatric surgery as a treatment for adolescents with severe obesity, calling for a call to action for there to be greater access to care for adolescents to seek bariatric surgery. So let's talk about who's in. So who qualifies now for adolescent bariatric surgery? Two indications for bariatric surgery. So kids qualify for surgery based on weight. So BMI at or above a 35 with a comorbidity. That comorbidity can be a medical or a psychiatric comorbidity, like depression is good enough, um, or BMI at or above 40 without a need for a comorbidity. The other part is that there must be a multidisciplinary team that assesses the ability and motivation of patients and families to adhere to treatment pre and post surgery, including their use of micronutrient supplementation. Ideally, the guidelines call for a team that's been clinically accredited, and as Dr. Fink said, that's us. We're clinically accredited um, to provide that service. So for those of us when the new guidelines came out, the thing that was strikingly missing from who's in for bariatric surgery is age. There is no mention of age now as a criteria for bariatric surgery. So historically, we've always used 14 as the minimum age for people to have bariatric surgery. Some programs have talked in terms of bone age or tanner stage. The new guidelines are clear. Adolescence starts at age 10, so we've effectively lowered the bottom age for bariatric surgery to age 10 um, to 19, but it is very clear. If you have a child under the age of 10, with severe obesity and the benefits of surgery outweigh the risks, they should be considered for bariatric surgery as well. Given kind of the look of horror that's on some of your faces, we appreciate that. I don't think anyone, including our surgeons who really like to be in the OR, want to be doing surgery on kids in single digits, but I think it's the fact that we are where we are in the obesity epidemic and we have kids that need a greater intervention a lot earlier than ever before. So who is not accepted for bariatric surgery at this time? A couple. One is obesity that can be corrected medically. They are not appropriate for bariatric surgery. If you've had a substance abuse problem in the past year, we're gonna decline in you having surgery at this time. If you have any kind of condition that prevents adherence to post-operative regimen, or if you're pregnant or plan to be pregnant, 
we're going to decline on surgery for you as well. But from this, there are many groups that used to be excluded for surgery that are now no longer excluded for surgery. And a lot of this is our kids with syndromic causes of obesity. So our Prider Willie kids are kids with hypothalamic obesity. Previously, these were not considered appropriate to undergo bariatric surgery. And the new guidelines are clear. We don't have any other treatment that works for this population. Bariatric surgery is their only option and they should be considered for surgery. This is significant because a few years ago, Cincinnati Children's Hospital made the news when they had this little girl um, as a patient. So she is nine in this photo. And a few months after this photo was taken, a brain tumor was discovered um, in her. And as one would do, she had surgery to remove that tumor that damaged her hypothalamus. She, as a result, developed hypothalamic obesity, had an insatiable appetite, gained 150 pounds in two years. And by the age of 12, her parents were locking the cabinets. They were trying to get her into the gym. She struggled with walking. She had all the medical comorbidities that could one could have. Her insurance company denied her for surgery. So her family took it to social media and created sort of a uproar, um, which caused two uproars. One of how dare you insurance company take away this child's right to have something that could really help them and cause an uproar for Cincinnati children's of, good Lord, what are you all doing to a child by removing her stomach like this? She did undergo surgery. Um, the insurance company took it back. Um, so they did pay for the surgery. She had surgery. Um, she lost a, a good amount of weight after surgery. She ran a 5K six months after surgery um, and all of her medical complications went away. Um, sadly, her brain tumor has come back. So she's still in treatment for that. And while she's gained a little bit of weight as a result of that, her medical comorbidities are still gone. So she's able to battle her brain tumor without also having to deal with a lot of obesity and its complications as well. Previously, we didn't consider adolescents with poor decision-making capacity um, for bariatric surgery. And the new guidelines now change this, where they say that ideally, we'd really love to have adolescents assent and the consent of a parent or guardian. But if you have a teen or a child who is able to make and demonstrate behavior change, even if they can't assent for the procedure, they can still be considered for bariatric surgery. Um, you could consult with your ethics committee, but these kids should not be excluded because they don't have decisional making capacity if they're able to make some behavior changes. And what pains the psychologist greatly is that our knowledge about mental health as it relates to bariatric surgery is a little bit um, fuzzy to say the least. So we know that it's poor and we need more work. Um, some research suggests improvements in mental health at one to two years post-surgery. Others suggest a decline around year two. Others say things stay sort of the same. Um, there's no current evidence that mental health impacts weight loss outcomes, but we know more work is needed. There are no current guidelines or standards of care for the mental health assessment of youth undergoing bariatric surgery. Um, I'm happy to say that Connecticut Children's is leading the work group that's writing those guidelines for um, ASMBS but they're not, they don't currently exist. So in terms of what a mental health assessment or what those outcomes look like that people are tracking, pick your program, it's different for each one. What we do worry about in terms of the mental health care of kids post-surgery is what we see in the adult literature, which is two concerns. One is the rates of suicide, which are high prior to surgery, because we know that um, kids with severe obesity are a high risk population for suicide as is. But there's some adult literature that shows that about two years post-surgery, there's an increased risk of, of suicide attempts in that time period that no one really kind of understands why that is. But in the adult literature, there's a significant increase at year two. 
The second is the concept of transfer addiction. So if I can no longer use food as a coping strategy or that's no longer the thing that makes my brain happy, what am I gonna do instead to sort of um, fill that need? And what we've seen in the adult literature is people go from using food as a coping strategy to now turning to gambling or um, other kinds of unhealthy compulsive shoppers, things like that. Um, and where um, the field got particularly concerned was the high rates of opioid use after bariatric surgery for adults, which is actually the National Quality Improvement Project for Bariatric Surgery this year if you're a center of excellence program. Um, but those tend to be the two areas that we um, look at as concerning in the adult literature, but we don't have a lot of literature about it in adolescents. With the exception of active psychosis, suicidality, or substance abuse, well-managed mental health should not be a contraindication for surgery. Um, if you've ever met a teenager, you know the concept of well-managed anything is a little bit um, interesting um, theory, um, but that's the, that's the guidelines for you, well-managed mental health. What's also not considered a contraindication for surgery is anything related to family dysfunction, um, which was interesting for us as a program because we've always valued so much the emphasis on family, family first, family this. Um, but in the absence of a supportive family, kids can still have bariatric surgery, a history of maltreatment, um, and disordered eating, including loss of control eating. It's the belief that these are behaviors that can be managed before surgery, and so they should not prevent people having surgery. The guidelines make clear that we need to monitor mental health thoroughly throughout and that uh, adolescents need to be screened and counseled on alcohol, smoking, and vaping, and what we've learned as well, pregnancy. So when we think about the new guidelines, which really opened up who qualifies for surgery, um, part of the reason why it did that is that we know that bariatric surgery is the only effective treatment for the care of youth with severe obesity. And Dr. Healy will talk to you about more about this, but if you have a kid with type 2 diabetes, five years post-bariatric surgery, 90% are still in remission and require no medication after having had bariatric surgery. If you have a kid that has NASH, 85% are in remission of that following bariatric surgery. OSA, all those kind of medical comorbidities, bariatric surgery is the only treatment that is going to put those diseases into remission or completely cure them. But we know we have an issue. I won't make you guys do a show of hands or a poll everywhere, but if I ask you to think about families that you see or kids that you see that have severe obesity, does your treatment decision making change for them because you put their weight on the forefront? I could spend the next hour talking to you about the stigma attached to patients with obesity and the stigma they feel by healthcare providers, how they feel about what they're serviced and where they're not sent and the services they don't receive. And so we know that this is a significant issue. The other issue that we know that has come from that is the belief that weight loss surgery is the easy way out. Oh, if they just got on the treadmill and like put down the, what were they serving out there? Bagels and pastries before y'all came in here? Everybody just put down the bagels and pastries, went to Orange Theory. We would all not have a weight problem, right? Because it's that simple, sorry. It's all that simple, right? Um, and we know that weight and weight loss is so much more complex than that. And I would love to say that weight loss surgery is easy or an easy way out. But if anybody was on call this weekend and saw two of our kids in house, Surgery is not easy and it's not um, an easy way out. But I do know, um, particularly since many of you endorsed a one, um, for whether or not you would ever consider surgery for a kid, that this is still a prevalent thing um, because you may believe it because I've been told to my face from providers that they strongly don't support bariatric surgery. But I think we need to reconceptualize what bariatric surgery is and who it is helping. So I think about the kids in our program. 
I think about the 12 year old girl whose life and her body was completely ravished when she was put on antipsychotic medication. And you don't need to be a mental health provider to know what happens when a kid starts on one antipsychotic medication. That one doesn't work, so we up the ante or add a second one. Then we add a third one, and then you gain a tremendous amount of weight. Mental health is good, but their physical damage to their body is sort of done. And now at age 12, having tried many other ways to lose weight, this child has fought so hard for her mental health. Who are we to say she can't have bariatric surgery to regain back her physical health after she had fought so hard to regain back her mental health? Or I think about the mom who has a 14-year-old who has autism and is nonverbal, has cerebral palsy, is in a wheelchair a whole lot of time, and oh, hey, just got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Do you know what the care for that family is like and what that mom does um, to care for that child 24-7, which was bad enough to begin with, and now you add diabetes on top of it, and oh, yeah, he has a needle phobia as well. That mom has done everything for that child, and who are we to say, you know what, this surgery can take away at least the diabetes for that child to at least reduce that burden um, for that family. And I think about the five-year-old who I met for the first time in endocrinology with Karen Bucci back when they were two and weighed 90 pounds. Um, and I met again when they were five in the PICU after having been life start here. This is a child who's lost their childhood. That's not their fault. That's the product of their environment. And now that they're in a new environment where things have been able to change, this child is no longer able to lose any more weight. We have effectively done all that we can from a behavior management, improving the environment, get him moving, change his food. We've done all that. His body is not responding. What am I supposed to do with him at five years old other than give him an opportunity to get his childhood back by offering bariatric surgery? I always conclude our grand rounds with this photo, which they would hate if they knew I was still showing this photo. Um, this is um, two of our, uh, anybody running the Manchester road race this weekend? Yeah, this was them a couple years ago running uh, the Manchester Road Race three months after weight loss surgery. I assure you they were not running uh, prior to surgery. In fact, one of them required their mom's assistance to use the restrooms. But this is the neat thing that comes from bariatric surgery, right? At the point that our kids realize that they can have some control over their body, they can do amazing things like run the Manchester Road Race, even that god-awful hill. And thanks to our physical therapy department that helped them kind of run this. <laughs> They were there encouraging and hearing all the words. But this is what bariatric surgery does. It gives kids their life back and it gives them a sense that they can do things that they never thought that they would be able to do before. And to talk more about that, I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. Healy and I thank you for your time this morning. Good morning and thank you so much for the opportunity to present today. Uh, I'll just get started. Dr. Santos was talking about the easy way out. Uh, so I wanted to start out talking about what's considered the hard way. I think my entire life I've heard about the solution to obesity is diet and exercise. And honestly, we're completely, uh, we're always sold the hope that these things are going to work. Uh, there's weight loss programs, there's the fad diets, there's the gym memberships and nutritional supplements, diet sodas. This is a $60 billion industry, and I should probably buy stock in them, but I have nothing to disclose. Uh, the failure of all these things keeps people coming back. And the more that you blame yourself for the lack of success, the more things you'll buy. And that's how this has been working for years and years. And we all know stories of success. We know an aunt or a neighbor who's 
had good results with some of these things and that keeps us coming back. Uh, but as a population, this has been an uphill battle. Despite all of these options, our country's consistently gaining weight and this problem is worsening. Uh, this is of course a public health issue. This requires major policy changes and uh, addressing income and racial disparities and uh, population level research. But where I come in as a surgeon is to answer, how can I help the severely obese patient who's already an adolescent and gained all this weight? Uh, oops, sorry. Uh, how do I help the, the people who are already having severe comorbidities and who can no longer effectively exercise? For the severely obese, the average long-term outcome of these interventions is just maintaining their current weight. No studies have shown a significant or durable weight loss from medical intervention alone in the severely obese. And for these adolescents who have type two diabetes, uh, there was a 2018 study in JAMA Pediatrics that compared the outcomes of bariatric surgery to those of maximal medical therapy and found a substantial improvement in the surgery group while the me maximal medical therapy group had an average increase of BMI of 3.3 over the same time. For adolescents with class two obesity, attempts at diet and exercise changes may work in the short term or select cases, but the average long-term result is weight gain. So this led the AAP in the last couple of weeks uh, to support early referral to a program like ours, the multidisciplinary weight management team, including bariatric surgery. This is for patients with class two obesity. Uh, and these statements uh, should be in the handouts from today. Uh, a center like ours will perform an assessment to identify treatable underlying causes and incorporate nutritional, psychiatric, endocrine, and pediatric evaluations all into condensed appointments to address every individual's needs. Uh, the vast majority of our referrals do not see the inside of an OR, uh, but the portion of these patients who may benefit from surgery are able to talk to a surgeon about it. And surgery is frightening to most teenagers and to most families, and, and we're well aware of that. Uh, there's a strong stigma against bariatric surgery for children, and some consider it a, a failure of their own will or admitting defeat and others like a form of cheating uh, or against their nature. Uh, the patients who are referred to surgery within our program uh, are well beyond the metabolic tipping point uh, where their chances of being physically able to sustain a loss of 10, even 10% of their body weight are almost non-existent. When these children start to recognize the toll that this is taking on their health, uh, and the, the comorbid conditions that they're developing. They can't exercise because their knees hurt too badly. They can't stop taking their mood stabilizing medications. Uh, they start to see a value to what we have to offer. And it's an intervention that's designed to give their body a reset, uh, to give them the boost that they need to get a new fresh start on their life. So I'll talk a little bit about the different procedures that we have as options and then get into what we use currently. The lap adjustable gastric band uh, was strongly favored about five to 10 years ago. Uh, 
and in part due to having the least surgical impact and being reversible. The reservoir port that you see here is implanted under the skin and it's used to either fill or empty the adjustable balloon of the band. Uh, this technique leaves a small gastric pouch at the top so patients cannot physically eat much. And it's fallen partially out of favor because of the relatively increased rate of complications, including slipped band uh, or erosion of the band into the stomach and an overall higher rate of reoperation uh, when you compare it to the others. So the gold standard uh, weight loss surgery is the laparoscopic Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And this is the gold standard because it provides the most weight loss, uh, leaving only a small pouch of stomach up top here. And it excludes a large portion of the stomach. This is technically reversible. Uh, a limb of intestine is brought up to the pouch, which allows it to drain, and the entire biliary system remains intact. This requires more surgery and two new intestinal connections and therefore it's got an increased risk of complications. So we generally do not choose this as the initial procedure of choice in young patients uh, unless they have specific comorbid conditions such as severe reflux or really bad gastroparesis uh, since this procedure nearly eliminates reflux and allows the stomach to drain well. The weight loss is excellent but New patient, our, our patients are subject to the possibility of internal hernias and vitamin deficiencies, as well as ulcer formation as complications. The procedure of choice for most adolescents and the one that we do most commonly here is the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. And this removes the greater curvature of the stomach and includes the bulk of the oxyntic mucosa, which is a source of ghrelin production uh, and which that's a potent appetite stimulant. So we remove approximately 80% of the reservoir volume of the stomach, and this leads to early satiety and decreased appetite because of the loss of the ghrelin effect. This prompts weight loss. And this operation has far fewer complications than either of the other primary procedures, <coughs> is generally well tolerated, and nearly as successful as the Ruin Y. So that's why it's our primary choice now. The procedure itself is performed laparoscopically with five small incisions and involves mobilizing and removing the lateral portion of the stomach. And it maintains all of the normal intestinal connections. Uh, this has less nutrient uh, loss than the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass and has that as less of a problem in the long term. As you can see here, a laparoscopic stapler is used to create the gastric tube. So these procedures are able to create a durable weight loss and reduce the effect of comorbid conditions. Uh, the weight reduction is an average of 27%. And as Dr. Santos was mentioning, there's a 95% correction of type 2 diabetes, 74% correction of blood pressure, and 66% collection of cholesterol levels. This also significantly improves both the biochemical and histologic parameters in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is rapidly becoming the number one indication for liver transplant in our adult patients. This, all of this is along with an increased patient reported quality of life. 
So the perception that metabolic surgery is an easy way out is inaccurate. Uh, for many of these patients, this is a significant metabolic disruption and it's by no means easy. The results are not immediate. Uh, there is no liposuction involved, uh, which has the potential to add additional complications. So we don't do that at the time of surgery. And there is the temporary post-operative pain and nausea requiring admission after the procedure. It's not easy, but for some severely obese patients, this may be the only current way to effectively get durable weight loss. As surgical complications are, are uncommon. They're most frequently minor, but in some reports, uh, they're up to 8% of patients. Significant complications are much more common in the patients with class three obesity, who already have multiple medical comorbid conditions and BMIs in the range of 50. So what do our patients go through? Uh, all lap sleeve gastrectomy patients uh, will need a preoperative ultrasound of the right upper quadrant. If they have gallstones, we will remove their gallbladder at the time of surgery. Uh, this is because rapid weight loss precipitates cholesterol and makes gallstone formation more common. So they're more likely to have a problem in the future with that. All of these patients will undergo an upper GI the day after surgery before starting a diet. And most stay in-house for about two to three days, uh, treated mostly for nausea as they acclimate to their new anatomy. And over the next several weeks, there's gradual advancement of the sugar-free diet along the bariatric steps uh, diet program. They cannot take pills or any gummy medications for 30 days. And follow-up occurs over the next five plus years. And what we do in our program is monitor for nutrient deficiencies, weight regain that might require medication treatment, port site hernia formation, gallstone formation, and, and all of the potential complications of the surgery. Uh, and then we have a partnership with Hartford Hospital for transitioning as they become adults. Our program's data, uh, our mean age of surgery is 18 years, and our mean BMI is 43, plus or minus 6.5. After the operation, the average loss in BMI is 7.2, and percent excessive BMI lost is 28%. You can see here the comparisons pre and post-surgery for average. We have an improvement in BMI, the triglycerides, LDL, uh, fasting, or sorry, uh, the insulin requirements as well. We never take the decision to offer an adolescent or a child surgery lightly. And it really requires a thoughtful shared decision-making process among all the providers in our group, between the patient, the family, uh, and across multiple specialties. It, the process itself takes approximately a year for a patient from when they enter our program to when they actually undergo surgery. And beyond BMI and comorbidity status, we include criteria like psychologic, uh, physiologic, and developmental maturity, and the ability to understand the risks and benefits and adhere to the lifestyle modifications. Uh, and we also make sure that there's family or social support in order to get people through these operations. Thank you.
Hi, good morning. So my role is where do medications fit in this paradigm? So that's a relatively newer thing that we are learning. I'd like to review the pathways and hence the targets, therefore, that we can use for medications, as well as their side effects, and emphasize that ultimately it really needs to be individualized for the patient. I'm going to refer to the pediatric guidelines. So the Endocrine Society actually came out with a clinical practice guideline that I highly recommend for general providers. So if you just Google endocrine society guidelines and then choose the pediatric obesity ones, it's a global approach to pediatric obesity. And then there's a separate article that goes into medications that's for adults and kids, but I'll just reference the sections that are relevant to us. Um, and uh, let's talk about the pathways, right? So I'm an endocrinologist. I cannot have a talk without a pathway of some kind. So therefore, I have to have this super complicated slide, but I just want to break it down to the relevant sections for everyone. So I just want to start off by saying there are actually multiple organs that are involved in obesity. You know, we're, we're taught it's calories in, calories out. The family's just not getting that balance right. We fix it. It'll fix the situation. But when you really understand that there's so many hormones and there's genetics to it, it might help us I guess for some of us, uh, sympathize more with how difficult it can be, and it's not just a matter of calories in and out. So when you get all the organ systems, of course, there's the pancreas, because we know about insulin, but also the small intestine, adipose tissue turns out as an endocrine organ, the stomach, the large intestine. When we eat, hormones and enzymes are released, peptide YY, CCK, they are satiety signals. Um, GLP-1 is a hot topic now because we're learning that it has multiple roles, and I'll show you that a bit later, and that if we can manipulate them, we can help with appetite and weight loss. Leptin stimulates POMC neurons, which suppresses food intake, and it turns out that there are actually a lot of different pathways that ultimately result in stimulating POMC, which then suppresses food intake. Um, and Dr. Healy mentioned that ghrelin is a big thing that actually is an appetite stimulant. And that's how sleeve gastrectomies work in part because you remove the ghrelin producing cells. So this gives us certain areas that we can target. Like if we can manipulate GLP-1, if we can give someone GLP-1, we could suppress their appetite. If we could give someone who's leptin deficient, that's a very particular case though. So if you are truly leptin deficient, giving you leptin, might be the solution. And any of these medications that ultimately stimulate POMC can help us suppress appetite. So what are some of those ways that we can do that? I mentioned uh, increasing POMC by, for example, GLP-1 directly. Give someone that GLP-1, even if they make some, giving them extra can suppress the appetite. Mechanisms that increase dopamine. For example, bupropion can do that and anything that increases serotonin. For example, a medicine that I'll refer to, lorcarserin, can do that. Um, and anything that stimulates GABA, and that's been interesting from data from topiramate for other conditions, by actually stimulating GABA neurons, you can suppress appetite. Oh, I did want to just mention in passing, oralistat is not in this diagram because it works in the gut. It's not through these pathways. It's actually directly inhibiting lipid absorption. Not well tolerated, but it does work. 
And then SGLT2 is a new player on the market, not in this diagram of central pathways, because it literally makes you urinate out the extra glucose and lose calories. So we're finding that data from our type 2 patients that they're helping the A1Cs, but also helping with weight. That's a renal pathway. When we look at the data in adults, oh, and I, I should mention that I don't have any financial disclosures with any of these medications, I will allude to which and which aren't FDA approved for pediatrics. Um, so in adults, we have more options. We have fentramine. Some of us, when we listen to the word fentramine, we get flashbacks, negative flashbacks of the fen-fen days when people would get this stuff, lose weight, but they'd also get heart attacks. Um, so yes, the good and the bad. Uh, but I'll go into how we can safer use these new medicines um, in ways that don't quite give us uh, those bad side effects. So they found that when you use topiramate in combination with fentramine, you can get some of that weight loss benefit without using super high doses of fentramine and seeing the bad side effects. Lorcaserin does not have pediatric data. That's our serotonin um, uptake. And then Orlistat does have pediatric data, um, but the side effect profile is limiting. There's a combination of naltrexone with the bupropion um, that does show weight loss. It has a specific use in adults that have addictive behavior patterns. Um, and then there is liraglutide, which is basically giving someone GLP-1. We use this in type 2 diabetes, actually, and that's how we learned that those patients were also losing weight. That one is an injectable, a daily injectable. The others are pills. When we look at efficacy, the best combination has been so far the fentramine and topiramate combination. It also is actually the cheapest, so I should say a lot of these medicines are not covered by insurance. When you have families that really want to try it and they're paying out of pocket, fentramine is now available as a generic, topiramate we know is cheap, so you can actually split the two, prescribe them separately, and it's a little bit more affordable than the other options. It also, so far, has the best data. So when we talk about obesity meds, one very important thing to talk about is what about long-term, right? All the studies from manufacturers love to show you six months, maybe some go out to one year, but we like to have long-term data if we're going to take these side effects um, on board. So this one also is long-term data. We're talking about 10% weight loss at two years. Um, and then when you look at the others, it's more like three to 5%. Sustained data is more about six, 7%. Um, so, so far, that first one is our best bet. What about in pediatrics? Um, so this table is one among many that I'm referencing from that guideline article. And Orlistat is technically the only FDA-approved medication for even younger teenagers um, for specifically weight loss. As we all know, we are in pediatrics. We don't always wait for adult data to use other things, but technically the one that's FDA approved is Orlistat. However, you're literally inhibiting fat absorption and affecting fat absorption. So where does all that fat from McDonald's go? It goes into your stool. Every time you pass gas, some of that oily stool can come out. As you can imagine, not a pleasant side effect for a high schooler. So unfortunately, even though it is FDA approved and it does give you some weight loss, uh, I don't have any patients who have been sustained on Orlistat. Orlistat is available in an over-counter weaker form, not by prescription, called Ally. Um, and I've had a few patients try that and weren't able to tolerate even the low doses. Um, and I have nobody on prescription strength. Metformin, we're all more comfortable with metformin. Why? Because we're familiar with it. 
It's approved for type 2 diabetics, including pediatrics over age 10. We're familiar with metformin in younger patients with PCOS or in um, older patients, some younger patients with prediabetes in order to prevent type 2 diabetes. The weight loss per se for most patients, however, unfortunately small, I will say there's a vast degree of variability. And I should say for all weight loss medicines. So whenever I present an average, please be aware there might be a patient who might have two pound weight loss, who might have 20 pound weight loss. And I might say, well, the average is five to 10 pounds. So there is variability there, but generally speaking, not that effective for weight loss, might be useful for patients with elevated insulin levels or prediabetes more so than other patients. Um, it does definitely prevent the onset of type 2 diabetes if you have someone who already has prediabetes. Major side effect with this is GI upset, especially when you start it. Slow titration is super important if you're going to use metformin for any indication. Topiramate, while not being approved for pediatric obesity, is also something that we're more familiar with and more comfortable with. Whether it be from seizure data or migraine data, it, we have found that it can control cravings. Uh, we know about the fetotoxicities, and of course, everything has side effects. With topiramate, we talk about paresthesias, concentration, rare cases of suicidality, but these are significant um, things to talk about. Fentramine is technically FDA approved for 16 and up. So you do have the older adolescent group where you could actually say to the family, it is at this age. Um, but it does have our cardiac concerns, tachycardia, elevated anxiety. A lot of them have pre-existing anxiety, tremors, increased blood pressure. So if they already have pre-existing hypertension, it can get tricky. Oralistat literally makes you put the fat into your stool. Metformin turns out has multiple pathways in how it's working. We know about inhibiting glucose absorption, glucose production, improving insulin sensitivity, but we also now know that it actually elevates that GLP-1 hormone that I mentioned earlier. So that for some patients, it can affect actual satiety. Um, and it's approved for type 2 diabetes. Um, and we like, we like to use it, especially in endocrinology, because we're very familiar with it especially with our PCOS patients and prediabetes patients, but also there are specific adolescent data for if you have um, psych, psych meds and you have weight gain that we can really see is related to that. Um, it does have a specific role in those patients and there is some data, including in adolescents, that if you have fatty liver disease, metformin can actually be useful. When we talk about the combination of fentramine and topiramate, this busy slide is just to illustrate that it is dose dependent. So just being on the placebo, right, in a study already produces some weight loss, just hearing the message about diet and exercise. Low doses give you some weight gain, up to negative 8% of your baseline weight. Higher doses give you more, maybe uh, about a 10% reduction, even as much as 15% of your baseline weight is lost, and that's at one year. So it is dose dependent. You do have to titrate that combination. When you work, walk through any GLP-1 pathways and work through them, you actually realize that GLP-1 has multiple targets. We talked about appetite suppression. So this is a small intestine-produced, GI tract-produced hormone that does have appetite suppression centrally, but also <laughs> slows down gastric emptying. Actually, you feel fuller faster. It improves insulin sensitivity. It has a role in that pre-diabetic diabetic. And turns out it has cardiac benefits. 
I actually, in my adult practice, I have adult cardiologists asking if I would consider using GLP-1 for the diabetes because the patient also could have cardiac benefits. So it turns out, we're going to hear more about this uh, for cardiac approval because it turns out it has benefits there as well. So it sounds good so far, right? For weight loss. When we talk about adults, and I will be honest, I use this parameter for a lot of my older adolescents who've attained final height. You really can just use weight. 5% um, of your baseline weight should be gone at three months. That means the medicine worked. So we do have to keep in mind, it's not for everybody, as I said. Some people don't see enough benefit. So at the three-month mark, you want to see what they lowered from their baseline weight. If it's ineffective, try another one. Certainly if there are side effects, you have to switch. For pediatrics, per those guidelines, the, if you're looking for a BMI score reduction, the BMI Z-score reduction should be more than 4% at that three-month mark. What about the role in post-bariatric surgery? So about a quarter to a third of adult patients who have been studied longer term post-bariatric surgery have weight gain within two to five years of the procedure. To be clear, this is not weight gain all the way back to their pre-op weight, just a trend in it going back up, but that's concerning. They've worked so hard, as you heard, to be in the program and get the surgery, and over time, if they drift up, we need an option. So they have studied weight loss meds in this population, and there's actually a younger adult study that was also done looking at does this have a role? And so at one year follow-up, if they were already gaining weight, um, thought was given to medication. As you would imagine, people are comfortable with metformin. They tried it um, and they did get about a 3% weight loss. Again, this is median. Some people had way more, some people had way less. Uh, but when they looked at topiramate or fentermine, it was more like 8% weight loss. So we were able to help a lot of them get back um, to their post-op weights even. 54% lost greater than 5% of their weight gain. 34% got 10% benefit. 23% got like 15% of the weight back down. So for some people, it works far more than other people. That's super important with weight loss meds to keep in mind. Now, I do want to emphasize that surgery produces more weight loss and more rapidly than medication. Both surgery and medications have risks and benefits. It's not like if you use medication, you get away with risks. There are always risks. There is not sufficient long-term data in adolescents in terms of sustained weight loss when using medications. We have shorter-term studies that show the meds do work for our teenagers as well. And so overall, it's important to consider medications for weight loss when therapeutic lifestyles have hit a plateau. And I don't mean someone coming in and saying, doc, I I've done everything. I mean, they've been in a weight loss program. You know they've really given their best to diet and exercise and it hasn't worked. If they have a high BMI, but are otherwise, for example, other medical reasons, psychosocial reasons we heard about, for other reasons they're not a candidate for surgery, or they've had that weight gain post-bariatric surgery and you wanna help them get back to a better place. We can all open up for questions. Thank you very much. I hope you guys can uh, see and, and 
understand from this uh, presentation that there is a lot that goes into taking care of each individual patient that presents to our multidisciplinary center, um, and that um, our goal is to provide the safest and best care for these patients. Uh, here's how to get in touch with us uh, if you have any referrals or any questions, and I'll open it up for questions now to any of the panelists that uh, spoke. Hi. Thanks. Um, a lot of us take care of kids with ADD, and they have a problem, obviously, with losing weight and appetite suppression. My favorite patient is an obese ADD kid. Um, how does that work? How do the stimulants uh, decrease appetite and decrease weight? So for a lot of them, we don't actually know the direct mechanism. It's postulated that it works via one of those pathways. Um, for some, the theory is that it actually increases your basal metabolic rate. So a stimulant like fentramine, they've done some studies looking at that. So the, the disadvantage when I said was tachycardia sort of works for you in terms of if you're increasing your overall metabolic rate and your resting basal rate um, and causing some mild hyperthermia also in some studies that you're actually burning more. Um, some of them are thought to be maybe there's a central mechanism, maybe through POMC or through one of the other appetite regulatory centers in the hypothalamus that um, work for keeping you awake, but also for burning more calories or actual appetite suppression. So unfortunately, I don't have a specific answer except postulated theories as to one of those pathways are probably involved. Hi. Two questions. First question is, um, is the evaluation covered by insurance and is the surgery covered by most insurance, including Medicaid, Medicare type things? Second, second comment would be is I've always learned listening to adults talk that the bulk eater, the kid person who is just a big eater of food, okay, does relatively well with this type of surgery, but the Frappuccino and the chocolate lover tend not to do as well. The liquid calories get in there comment both those right okay uh thank you for the question so yes the initial evaluation um is covered by insurance we also have some bundled payments depending on the insurance company as far as nutrition visits physical therapy uh my experience has been the medicaids have been robustly covering this and actually i'm always amazed um at the fact that we will put, bill a professional fee and we'll get 100% of it back, meaning I think we're charging too little. <laughs> um, but we have not had met much difficulty in getting this covered at this point. Second, yes, everybody has different responses to the surgical procedures, whether it's a procedure such as the band where you're making it, um, you're, you feel full faster and it's purely restrictive, um, as opposed to um, metabolic and restrictive, which is like a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Um, you can eat through or drink through your surgical procedure. So if you're drinking high calorie drinks, yes, the emptying is gonna be there and it's gonna go through, but that's why the majority of our patients are in our program for six months, um, because they are getting the counseling and the behavioral modification and, and we set the expectations uh, for them on how to eat healthy. We're not saying no, we're saying how do, you, how do you modify this within your daily lifestyle so that you can keep yourself satisfied but yet maintain a healthy lifestyle. Dr. Salazar. Oh, oh, sorry. Two, oh, two questions. What's the upper age limit for your program? Like when would they need to go to Harvard Hospital? And second, um, would you consider surgery in an adolescent or young adult with binge eating disorder? Okay. So the binge eating, I'm going to leave for Dr. Santos, but um, the upper age limit that we've done, if they've been in our program for a while, we will go up to age 26. 
and we do keep them into our program, um, you know, for several years after that. So we do have people in our program that are about age 30 for binge eating. So the key component of binge eating is loss of control eating, which is considered to be something that's modifiable. So if the kids are in counseling and they've started to be in treatment for that, then yes, we will consider them for surgery. We won't consider them for surgery if they're not currently in treatment for that. And then I just scare them a lot and say that they can eat through their staple line and then they die. <laughs> that usually works. That, that does sound scary. Uh, so, you know, first of all, uh, congratulations on, on a, just a fabulous program and all the awards that you have received and all the research and presentations that you've done over the years. It's really, this is really best in class for, for children's hospitals. So thank you for what you do. Um, I, I do have a question, you know, I take care of a fair number of, of young adults and adolescents with HIV and the biggest problem we have is always adherence, adherence to treatment, adherence to follow-up. I mean, they, they just don't follow our instructions, even though they're, you know, if they don't take their meds, they will die. Uh, so, so, so that the first question is how do you how do you monitor it here, and so you don't get lost, so they don't get lost to follow up after a very you know pretty significant procedure or with medications. The second one is more specific. Uh, the other thing adolescents do is they get pregnant, um, and and you know it's almost one hundred percent certain that they will be able to do it. And so the question is with uh, what how do you handle a uh, a pregnant uh, adolescent with who's had bariatric surgery? What are the specific things that we should be worrying about? Um, so compliance is a big issue within the program. This is one of the reasons why I really like the lap band because you couldn't get a band fill until you came to support group and saw us. And so that was our way of keeping the patients within our realm. But it is true the sleep gastrectomies work better and that is where we've moved most of our patients to. Uh, we have Rachel, and I'm not sure if she's here, who does a phenomenal job in keeping up with our patients. She sends them letters, she has their text, she has their cell phone number, she has their parents' number, she has their email. Um, it's a lot of uphill lifting that she does to make sure our patients stay compliant. We do also other technologically savvy, from Melissa, <coughs> methods of reaching out to our students, such as online support groups, Skype meetings, um, texting. We currently have a study that we're submitting to the NIH on technical uh, ways, uh, technology-driven ways to engage our patients. So we're trying all the different things, but it's true, compliance is our big issue. Um, and that does cause pause and cause us to, to worry at night. Um, as far as, what was your second question? Pregnancy. <laughs> so the first couple of cases I did, I was a, a, a surgeon down at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children and started their program there. And that's when Roux-en-Y gastric bypass was the way to go. And my first patient, I still remember her, got pregnant within six months of having that done. And as you know, that's a very metabolic operation. You'd have a lot of uh, vitamin deficiencies, nutrient requirements. So uh, how we handled that is we worked very uh, closely with the dietitian and monitor her blood levels, especially thymine, um, folate, and all that almost on a monthly basis to make sure she was meeting all the um, requirements. Once again, I'll say for the band, the nice thing is, is if they get pregnant, you take down the band, you're good. <laughs> for the sleeve, we haven't had any of our sleeve patients get pregnant yet, but the metabolic components are not as tricky um, and you just really have to follow their calories and they have to just increase their, their dietary consumption. Um, and we work with the nutrition department very closely for that. I will also say just on that point too, some programs will put all their kids, um, get them all an IUD oh, yeah. um, prior to um, them undergoing the procedure. We just send them to Dr. Bennett and yes. Adolescent Medicine, and she takes care of that for us. <laughs> How are you in your program? Are you including treatment of the entire family? 
So what are you teaching the parents? How are you teaching them to set limits on technology? How they shop, saying no, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so we've always had a philosophy in our program that we're here to treat a family. And if the parents aren't willing to make the changes, we can't expect the child to make it. So we don't um, let kids come generally by themselves for appointments. They always have to come with their, with their family, with their parents. We put everything at the emphasis of the family and all the changes at the family. So if we're reducing screen time, it's for the family. If we're increasing activity, it's for the entire family. And we find that that's the most effective way to do it is when it's not just directed at the child, but everybody's gonna be doing it and everybody needs to come on board or we're not doing it. So the other thing to know is, is that if we find that they're falling off the path, we will have a team meeting with the family. So it's our team with the family. Good. Thank you. All right. Once again, thank you very much. And I hope everybody has a happy Thanksgiving. I love that stool. <laughs> no, we're all set. Thank you so much. We will share um, within a week or so. So Liz, where'd you find this? So it is. Is it under Tom? Yeah, because that's where you ended up, right? Did you just do this? Oh, you didn't bring that up? Really? So it's under clock and you just have to hold it until it shows up. So you actually can do it from here. So what do you do? You assign room PC and go to front projector?